You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Ben. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Doing good today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Let me introduce you. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Benjamin Perry, uh, author of a book we're going to talk about called Cry Baby. That's cry, comma, baby. Subtitle is Why Our Tears Matter. Uh, you're a minister at the Middle Church in uh, Manhattan, I think. Um, and uh, you've written for the Washington Post, Slate, uh, Sojourners, and so on. I should now say, the and the Atlantic. <laughs> Now, now the Atlantic, because what an excerpt from the book or something or an adapted yeah, essay? Yeah, they, they, they printed uh, yeah, an adapted essay for the first chapter. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. So this is a step down after that, right? I mean, this is this is merely Bob's podcast and you've been on the Atlantic. No, I'm just working up, baby. This is a step up. You think this is this is Zena. good. Good. A little memo for Jeff Goldberg. Um, so uh, I should say we know each other a little. Uh, I, when I was visiting professor of science and religion at Union Theological Seminary, you had just gotten your, what, Masters of Divinity there and were actually working there for a while. We worked, we did a little, we worked together a little. We did. And yeah, I was uh, working in their communications department, um, doing that, some That's right. You're still, you're still in that business. I see. You're communicating. Sure <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, when I saw you had this book, I have a longstanding interest in crying. Uh, which may come up. And uh, so I thought uh, we should talk about this. Now, my first question, though. Yeah. You had a book party, right? I did. And did you, at the book party, this is the question. Did somebody play Janis Joplin's song, Cry Baby? <laughs> no? I, I wished we didn't. I, I had a whole list of, I had like a, a party playlist of all these different crying songs. And then I got there and Housing Works was like, oh, actually our like audio for the whole thing isn't that good. So we can't do the... Uh... <laughs> Is that true? But it was on my playlist. It, it yeah, was yeah, on went, your playlist. It was on my playlist. Good. Yeah. Good. That along with, uh, there's a this, this fabulous gay cowboy named Orville Peck who has a new song called Cry Baby Cry. That was the other one that I was, was pairing right next to it on the playlist. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I'm glad. Uh, so my... Uh... My respect for your marketing uh, sensibility only grows as we speak. I'm glad you you, you had the, the Janis Joplin angle. Uh, and so at the, at the book party, did you talk about the book? Did you give a little talk? I did. What did you say? Did because I'm thinking the kinds of things you said may be the kinds of things you'd like to say to our audience. I don't know. Yeah, we, we, we talked and I actually did the book party with uh, a comedian friend of mine. And so we did a little bit of a, a laughter and tears kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, where we're sort of straddling that that gap. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to sort of dive into a little bit of sort of where the book came from, um, which I think is a nice sort of entree to sort of where, sure. where that's I, union I like related. Is it, is it not kind of, union? yeah, yeah. I mean, so the book started, at least the experience that, that grounded the book started when I was in seminary. Um, well, I, mean, I guess it started, uh, when I had, you know, was a little kid and, and stopped crying as I, if you really want to get chronological about it. Um, but by the, when I got to seminary, I realized that I hadn't cried for more than a decade. And I was in a class and our professor was asking us to reflect on experiences weeping. And we were in little small groups and I was listening as one by one, my classmates were telling these beautiful stories about moments they cried that changed them, that brought them closer to somebody, or they had an experience of transformation. And as if, you know, the mm -hmm. conversation was going around the circle, I was racking my brain and I realized that I couldn't even remember the last time that I had cried, let alone, you know, wept in earnest. Mm -hmm. And it was this watershed moment for me where I realized that, that along the way, something in me had ossified because it wasn't that I would, you know, as I looked at that, that truth more deeply, it wasn't just that I wasn't crying anymore. It was that I actually really didn't feel very deeply anymore. I think that's oftentimes how people stop crying is mm -hmm. you stop deeply feeling you know the crying is almost the opposite of a canary in the coal mine it's the the last thing that goes um by the time you stop crying you've already emotionally deadened yourself so deeply and uh i really wanted to feel again and so i you know first year seminarians are a little bit extreme 
Um, Let me I ask decided, you first: you know, had, Did everyone else in the class have like a fairly recent crying memory? Yeah, or if not a recent one, at least a really pivotal one. You know, mm -hmm, within mm -hmm. you know a couple of years or something, but something that really meant something to them. And it, I just realized, like, I just didn't have anything, and it was, and more that it, like, I didn't have a crying experience. I just didn't have the kinds of deep emotion that other people were talking about. Um, you know. So I, I went home and I decided I was going to make myself cry. And I remember thinking it was going to be really easy. Like, oh, we all, you know, start off the world crying. It, it's going to be simple to cry again. And I sat down and I was like, okay, body go. Like, here it is. I haven't done this for over a decade. Like, here's the moment <laughs> you, you've been waiting for it. And it didn't happen. Uh, it was more difficult than I imagined to break that kind of emotional numbness that I'd cultivated for myself. And so it took me hours that first day. I did everything. I like tried to watch sad movies. I was listening to music that would hopefully make me cry. I was literally, I got to the point where I was just Googling things that make you cry and just clicking the results and trying to, you know, hit something that would work for me and it wouldn't. Um, and so finally I got to the point where I was, I was literally picturing my parents dying because I'm very close with them. And I was picturing they, they were they, they were still alive and you were they picturing. They still are. Uh -huh. Yeah, they still are. And I was literally picturing them dying and thinking about what I would say to them in that moment. And more to the point, what I hadn't yet told them. Because I wasn't out to them at this point in my life. And uh, you know, there were parts of me that I just still hadn't revealed. You, you uh, hadn't told them you were gay or that I was yeah, queer and you know, gender fluid and all, all sorts of different okay. things. Um and I really hadn't had any of those kinds of deep conversations with them, even though that I was I was so close to them. And it was that that feeling of what would I lose if they were to die today? These these conversations that I wouldn't get to have that mm -hmm. all of a sudden just broke this dam inside of me. And all of a sudden I started crying. And at that point, I felt like I was never going to stop. I just started weeping and weeping. It was like all this pent up stuff just coming out of my body. And then afterwards. I felt incredible, like not in the immediate crying, but like, you know, an hour later, I was like, oh my God, I feel alive in a way that I had not in so long. And so I started this weird spiritual experiment where I was like, I'm going to cry every day. You know, in retrospect, I, I can talk about it like it was like this, you know, lofty goal of trying to learn how to feel again. But like, honestly, it just felt so good to cry that I was like, this. This is something I've been missing, and I'm going to do this every day. Uh, and what happened was, over the course of several months, I just became a person who cried more easily. I just became a person who felt more deeply, mm. to the point that, you know, in the beginning, I usually would have to go home at the end of the day. And before I did my coursework or went out to hang out with my friends, I would, you know, sit down and make myself cry and go through the same kinds of emotional exercises. Did you have the to same... change the stimuli, as, as they say in yeah, psychology? Because I, I, yep. I would think you would get inured yeah, no. to any given... Yeah, so I would watch videos of refugees talking about like their experiences or watch, you know, pets getting reunited with a family, like anything that, yeah, I would, I would keep burying the, the stimuli. But I would, what I found was that, you know, week two was a little bit easier to, to get myself there. And then week three, it was even a little easier to get myself there. And then by the time, you know, month two, month three was rolling around, a lot of times I didn't have to go home at the end of the day and make myself cry because I had just already cried somewhere out in the world. Um, and now, you know, I, I really stopped the, I don't even remember being like, okay, experiment done. Oh, mm -hmm. it's over because I just became someone who cried a lot. And I, now <laughs> I cry most days. Do you um, really? not always, yeah, not always like weeping, weeping, but uh, yeah, yeah on, almost on, every like intentionally or no, just, I usually like, I'm reading something. I mean, a lot of my work is, you know, responding to things that are happening into the news and the world. And usually just reading something, something that somebody says, some story that's happening, some quote from an article will make me tear up. Sometimes I, you know, really cry in earnest, you know, like my grandmother's in the, the hospital right now. And so I've been crying, you know, more uh, intently uh, the last, you know, week or two than I have been in, in a while. Um, but usually there's some moment in the day that that will make me tear so up. So it's no longer a ritual the way it was for those several months. It's no longer, no, a, I just, but, but it happens. Yeah, my my emotions are just that much nearer to the surface. And I think mm -hmm. that that's something that I, I learned in sort of, you know, this experience was how much I was, uh, you know, experiencing a simulacra of emotion before then. 
you know, in you may have to define you may have to define that. I will, I will. So in in the uh, in, in the famous in book the, Simul Simulacra and Simula, what is there? Some French philosopher wrote a book with this. Yeah, that's title, uh, Eliade, wasn't it? Who knows? Um, but uh, in, in uh, the in the book, my book, <laughs> not that one. <laughs> I, I use like Plato's Yours allegory. Is more accessible of, than that one. We, we can we true. can confidently report. Um, I use Plato's allegory of the cave as like a sort of analogy that you know I was watching shadows flicker on the walls of my heart and making myself believe that they were real. Mm -hmm. Like I would, you know, feel happy. I could name the emotions. Like if you know you gave me a like one of those little charts they use for kids where they're like point to the cow. The cow says moo. You know, I, I could say, oh, yes, this feels happy. This feels sad. This feels, you know, mm. anxious. But all of those experiences were closer to just a, a static baseline than any kind of heightened emotion. Um, and what I was able to gain through sort of teaching myself to cry again was this ability to deeply feel. Now, when I get sad, oftentimes I will get very sad. If I get happy, I will be really actually euphoric. Um, and I, hmm. I was really excited about talking with you because I love because your work I seem on like the opposite. No, because I love your work on Buddhism. And I think so much of, of Buddhism is being mindful of one's emotional state. And I'm not necessarily in the business of fetishizing emotions in, right. in and of themselves. But I think that not experiencing an emotion deeply is in some core way, uh, you know, depriving ourselves of a fundamental part of our humanity and a, a fundamental part of what connects us with other people. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I, I'm interested in that balance of how do you, you well, know, both be mindful of your emotions while also feeling them fully. Yeah, that's it's an interesting feature of Buddhism. And I think an often misunderstood one that Buddhist practice can uh, and a lot of people would say should, uh, you know, a certain kind of Buddhist meditative practice, including mindfulness meditation, um, should move one toward equanimity. That's part of the idea. but it's a mistake to think of that as a kind of emotional numbness. It is uh, because there's a certain sense in which you are capable of getting closer to emotions, observing them more closely, feeling them in a certain sense at a finer grain, but being less reactive in a certain sense to them. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, actually, cry. I hadn't thought about this, but 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 uh, one thing I recommend to people who've never meditated is just, uh, and if they think they might not be good at it or something, um, sometime when they're feeling sad, I say sit down and just um, observe what you feel. And I think uh, one thing uh, one thing I I noticed the first time I did this is. Some of the things you feel when you're sad, even if you're not going to cry, you feel some of the muscles that would be activated by crying. It's almost like you feel it's almost like part of sadness is incipient crying. If you mm -hmm. if you pay attention to how you feel when you feel sad, you'll probably realize that part of the emotion is to get yourself a little ready for crying, I think. I'm not I'm not I'm not confident of this because I've never said it before this way, but I remember realizing that that there's a lot of action right around here when you're sad um yeah. and but anyway the, the the larger point is that you know mindfulness uh can bring you this interesting i mean what i'm wondering now is uh so so does mindfulness practice make you more readily experience sadness without the crying because you're less reactive to the emotions i honestly don't know i've certainly cried at meditation retreats uh more than once uh for what that's worth but um i don't know what were you thinking when you brought up buddhism yeah i mean my my instinct is perhaps that being more mindful allows us to both experience the emotion more deeply while simultaneously and almost paradoxically being less reactive to it mm -hmm. right and that that to me feels like something that i have noticed as i have just done more you know my own <laughs> therapy and uh you know the the bits of meditation that i that i'm able to to bring myself to sit down and do um and certainly prayer and other kinds of spiritual practice uh as well as you know chaplaincy and other experiences of providing care um i've gotten better at being attentive to my own emotional state without letting it sort of dictate exactly how i'm going to be moving or like control me 
I'm mm-hmm. able to sort of both observe and really truly name and experience what I'm feeling in in the fullness of it. And oftentimes that does bring me to a place of crying, mm-hmm. um, which I think just for me, and because we cry in response to so many different kinds of emotion, we could, like I will cry if I'm incredibly joyful. When I was, I definitely cried at my book launch because this was like this apotheosis of this thing that I had been longing for since I found out that that was how books came into the world. I remember like a teacher telling me like, oh yeah, you know, these things you love, like people write them. And it was like, what? People, I can write one, you know? And so like this moment of, you know, just being here, finally having written a thing that I've wanted to write my entire life was so joyful that I definitely, you know, was, was tearing up. Well, and event. you were in a socially um, supportive environment. I mean, that, that exact- can, the perception that a lot of people are supporting you in some really important endeavor can can bring tears, right? Yeah, that like reciprocity. Yeah, for sure. And and so uh, yeah, what I think I've gotten better at doing is, you know, I and it almost feels ironic to me is that like when I look back at a time when I was really more detached from my emotions, I actually feel like I was I was less good at let uh, like making decisions in ways that that felt like I was acting from a place of calm, from, mm-hmm. from a place of mindfulness, even though I was like not as overtly emotional, um, I certainly would like get really frustrated and give something up, or I would, uh, you know, get upset and angry with a friend and would, you know, say something I didn't mean, Be- even though I wasn't necessarily feeling the same kind of heightened emotion. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very good at, you know, examining the way that it was was affecting me. Well, that's now, be, that's being reactive to what to emotion. I mean, that's what you know. I meant when I said ideally through yeah. mindfulness, you're less reactive while uh, more aware of the feelings. Well, and what was really interesting to me, so like for the book, I I did a ton of different interviews with you know different folks because I wanted to make sure that this book reflected more experiences crying than you know I carry in my little body. Um, and it was interesting how thoughtful so many people are about crying and particularly like when they stopped or why they stopped or why they feel uncomfortable crying. It was this interesting contrast in sort of universality and particularity where I heard very similar things from all different kinds of people about feeling this shame around crying, feeling like there were lots of different circumstances where they weren't comfortable crying, feeling that they had this sort of experience of wrong embodiment that when you know they they cry it felt like it, it there was some sort of you know cognitive dissonance um and yet when i asked them to sort of dig deeper the reasons why they felt those experiences were so particular so everyone's sort of hitting this this similar place of being uncomfortable with tears but i would talk to you know black folks who would who would share with me oh yes i'm I'm actually really comfortable crying in like an all-black setting but when i'm in you know my white office place i feel like i can't cry because then it will confirm people's racist Mm -hmm. racist expectations about who i am or i would talk to women who would say oh yes i feel really uncomfortable crying because i feel it will confirm prejudices people have about you know women's inability to lead or be professional in the workplace Mm -hmm. or i would talk to queer people who would say oh i had so much shame around my body or my sexuality growing up that it really divorced me from crying and so now i feel this mm-hmm. real ambiguity when it comes to weeping that i i didn't have when i was really young before i had those kinds of formative experiences and so it was really interesting to hear how all of these people got to a very similar place of of feeling like this core human experience was something that they had trouble fitting into their lives and, and reconciling with their identity even though the the reasons why they felt that way were so varied. Yeah, well, I would assume, I mean, one category you didn't mention is kind of straight men, but but according to classic stereotype, they're certainly not supposed to cry, right? <laughs> That's who I start with. I have a whole chapter called Cowboys Don't Cry, which the, that line is taken from a interview I did with this guy who grew up on a West Texas cattle ranch. Um, and he said that that was his grandfather's, like, adage to him, like, repeatedly throughout childhood. Cowboys Don't he, Cry. His, yeah, his, he would start... He has shared this story of like, you know, lifting these heavy ranch gates when he was like seven. He was, a, mm-hmm. he had a different kind of childhood than I had. Um, and, and, and was being really frustrated lifting these gates. And he would start to get to the point where he was about to cry. And his, his grandfather would just cut in and say, yeah, cowboys don't cry. Yeah. Um, and he talks very astutely and with a lot of, you know, emotional clarity on the way that he funneled that crying into anger. 
he learned to play football. He learned to take the the sad or the upset feelings that he had inside of himself and not to channel them into crying and instead learned to, you know, to, to hit, hit him harder on the football field or, mm-hmm. you know, get release that pent up feeling, that emotionality through anger. And now he is older uh, and experiencing this, this shame that he has about not being emotionally available that is so intimately linked to the shame he experienced hmm. toward being emotionally vulnerable. Hmm. Now you mentioned, uh, you said that black people sometimes, or, or maybe you were just mentioning a black person who didn't want to cry, I guess, in the workplace for fear of reinforcing stereotypes. One thing I, uh, you mentioned in your book, I forget whether this is some kind of actual social science finding or something based on, um, uh, people you've talked to or something, but you said there, uh, among American blacks, there's a little bit more of an acceptance of crying and of communal crying, like crying together. Uh, I, I, so, and I mean, I wasn't aware of that. So I'm almost surprised to hear that the black person you just mentioned would have thought they were confirming any kind of stereotype by crying. But in any event, that was an interesting finding to me. Um, yeah, so that's not from a sociological study, I'll, I'll say off the bat. That's just something that I got from talking to a lot of people about crying, mm-hmm. is that I, I was almost pretty universally heard from the Black folks who I spoke with that they experienced experiences of collective crying, either in the Black church or in their in their you know home growing up uh, or you know events like funerals. Or th- there were lots of experiences of sort of collective grief, of collective weeping, in a way that I heard from very few white participants, uh, like participants, I did not do a study, <laughs> very few white folks I interviewed. Um, and, and certainly, that you know, it's not a monolith. There were, you know, there are exceptions mm-hmm. to both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the the person who I was referring to earlier, this, this uh, now they do DEI, HR work, Alex Love, um, you know, they talk about, you know, it was, it wasn't so much that by crying they would they would conform into you know racist stereotypes that black people cry all the time. It was more that they would be you know falling into racist stereotypes that like black people are unable to control their emotions. Okay, um, that was more the thing. But what was really interesting to me, yeah, is that that I I heard from a number of folks these experiences of collective weeping as as a as a mechanism f- and people drawing a, a direct line, you know, between that collective grief, collective weeping, collective you know ecstatic emotion. Because it was also, you know, weeping that comes from ecstatic praise or dancing or um, that would, you know, also turn into tears as a direct way to uh, resist racism in the United States. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I talked to Kelly Brown Douglas, who we, we both used to, <laughs> to work with uh, as one of the folks who I interviewed for the book. And she talks about, you know, crying as a humanizing experience, both in the object of, of the person who you are grieving, but also in the experience of crying oneself. Mm-hmm. That, that to cry is to affirm one's own humanity. And, you know, she posits, you know, that that's part of the reason why we have, you know, such a visceral and violent reaction to, you know, displays of public Black grief, like Black Lives Matter protests, um, because we don't want to affirm, you know, the Black humanity that sits at the center of that. But she also just reflected that in a a personal way, that, that to cry, to weep, was to declare oneself human in the middle of systems that rejected that humanity so often. Mm-hmm. So I gather like the science of crying is not all that well developed in a certain sense. I mean, it's no. th- there's frustratingly little that we can say uh, for sure. Um, I mean, you, you, first of all, in terms of uh, kind of evolutionary function, I mean, you talk about that a little in the book. I mean, I kind of suspect that it serves multiple functions from a Darwinian point of view. And now it may serve uh, different ones additionally uh, in, in a different sense, uh, you know, in terms of social or personal uh, function. But um, so I guess I, I would not be looking for the one true uh, function Rail. to begin with. What, <laughs> what did you, uh, what's your takeaway? Yeah, it, there is a frustrating lack of, uh, you know, deep scientific research on crying. Um, the, the analogy that I've somewhat been using um, when talking about it is uh, Rachel Gross has a new book on the vagina that she published called Vagina Obscura. Um, and she, in the beginning of it, talks about the 
incredible lack of research on non-reproductive functions of the vagina. Mm. That like just people weren't interested in that question for a very long time. And so nobody researched it because, we, you know, things that, and I think, you know, her takeaway is that like things that are effeminized uh, are not treated as worthy of scientific study. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the reproductive, you know, functions were seen as, as core because of their relationship to, you know, bearing children and sort of, you know, established patriarchal roles. Um, but the, the, you know, pleasure and, you know, other parts of the vagina just were not uh, considered worthy of the kind of academic study. And I think that sort of falls for a lot of things that are effeminized in our culture. And I think crying being one of them that, you know, for a long time, it was just seen as something that like was just sort of ephemeral. It's a thing that people did. It's, you know, it, it is sort of, you know, feminine mm -hmm. and, and not, you know, uh, <laughs> heroic in any kind of sense of like worthy of, of deep academic interest. Um, it's also not linked to any kind of, you know, most, you know, disorders other than perhaps some psychiatric ones, which again, we don't treat as, as seriously as, you know, real physical illnesses. Um, and so, you know, there's not the same kind of grant research and grant funding to do studies. It's also a difficult thing to research. Um, you know, most of the science, uh, the crying studies that exist out there, the way that they get, they get data is they sit participants in a room and they show them a really sad movie mm -hmm. and they hope that, boy, golly, that's sad enough to make people cry. And, it, you know, it's hard to think of a better research model, but it's also hard to escape the fact that, like, that feels a little artificial when it comes to something like crying that is often linked to these moments of extreme emotionality. That, like, the research fun findings that you get in a room full of people who just watched Brian's song is probably not <laughs> the same as you would get if you were, you know, interviewing, if you were, you know, researching and able to get gather data at the moment that, like, you know, a hundred different people lost somebody, which obviously for, you know, IRB approval would, would not be a, mm -hmm. <laughs> an approved design. Um, and so what's interesting is that, yeah, there, there's really, there's no, there's no, you know, one true answer of why we cry in part because there's a, a, a number of different competing theories. Um, they can be sort of broken into two fundamental camps. So there's the, the, the people who are in the like science, crying is an excretory function that lets us really stress, like, biological camp that it, the sort of cornerstone of that is this book called crying the mystery of tears that um uh, william frey uh who was a neuro neurological research uh, released in the 80s um his big finding was that they they took and studied the chemical composition of people's emotional tears and compared them to the chemical composition of irritant tears like by like blending an onion mm -hmm. and they found that in emotional tears there was like a 20 something percent higher protein concentration. And that's specifically some of the proteins present in higher concentration in chemical and uh, emotional tears were neurotransmitters linked to stress. And so he posited that crying was actually a way to release, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that stress from the brain. Um, as in like, it certainly the, seems sometimes to function that way. If you just reflect yeah, I mean, on when people sometimes cry and how they seem to feel after crying, that is Right. I mean, and yet, yeah. uh, and yet, uh, I was surprised to find that it's, it's, it's not even that completely pinned down that on balance people feel better after crying. I mean, I mean, is, am I wrong about that or is, is... no, you're, you're not wrong. So, so now we're getting into the other side of things. So, so that's, that's our, 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 uh, our biological essentialist criers <laughs> with, mm -hmm. uh, Frey and his acolytes. And then there's this guy, Advingerhoods, um, who is like the other, like he's like the big guy on crying. If you're looking into crying research, you'll name, see his name all over the place. Um, he's a, a researcher out of the Netherlands. Um, and he uh, really comes at crying from a social perspective. He, you know, largely thinks that there's not a whole lot to this, this crying uh, biological essentialism. And what some of the studies that he has done are the ones that show that like, oh, if you take a, you know, a measure of people as they're crying, actually a lot of times they don't feel better afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, now, part of the issue, I think, with some of those studies, if you parse them closely, is a lot of times they're taking that, that measure, how are people feeling, like, <laughs> right after people have stopped crying. Right. And I think those studies that he's done where they, they show, where they then come back to people, you know, at a later point, they find that the people who cried, they felt you know, because crying does, you know, gear up our somatic nervous system, you know, it, you start breathing heavily, your pulse quickens, you know. Um, so they found that the people would feel, you know, worse in the immediate aftermath of crying. But then if you check back with them, you know, an hour or a, a day later, they oftentimes would feel better 
than they did before the you know the crying event itself. Um, but his whole thing is he believes that crying is a is a social function. That crying is is purely to uh, elicit social support from other uh, you know humans. That that was how, why it was evolutionarily adaptive. That it provided, and some folks will talk. Evolutionary psychologists will talk about the function of a visible signal of distress right, right. being better than an acoustic one, because you know if you are like, "Hey, mm. a predator is coming," then the predator can also hear you. Um, mm. I don't know. That that seems like yeah. I mean, although I, I don't, say? and I think of just <laughs> just fear. I don't think of, and well, anyway, I do think it's true that that I mean, first of all, I think in Darwinian terms, what. I mean, laughter is interestingly comparable. Seems to happen in more than one kind of circumstance. Sometimes it's uh, used to kind of focus derision on a person you want to exclude from a group, and the and the group bonds around their disdain for the person. But sometimes yeah. it it's, it it can bond a group without that, and then sometimes and sometimes it does other things. I think often what happens in evolutionary history is originally there's like one function. But then mm -hmm. once you've got something, uh, it, it, you know, it can start serving other functions as well. And just thinking about it today, I was wondering whether, you know, one group of people that always cry are infants. And it seems pretty clearly to be in part a signaling device when they are in yeah. distress. Uh, they, 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 they try to, you know, it, it seems intended to get attention for them. And it seems to pretty reliably work, and it makes sense that evolution and would not design... just from their parents, but any caregiver. That like you also right. if you hear a crying infant, most people feel like a oh, I should help that infant. Out. Right, like that. And, um, and of course, during evolution, we would have had a not bad chance of being related to any given kid we heard cry. Right. I mean, it's probably yeah. either like a niece or a second something. You know, an eighth uh, cousin. Right. Uh. Uh. uh but but that that aside, I think you're right. It's a it's a universal uh, signal that people hear um, and respond to. So it could have started that that way as a signal emitted only by infants. Who knows? And then it came to do these other things. And, and sometimes in adults, it may be signaling, uh, but maybe because of uh, uh, the things it was supposed to signal, like I'm in distress. Uh, as it as it happened, then it developed uh, the function of actually relieving stress as well as being a signal. I mean, who knows? But it does seem to be a lot of stuff. And there's also the um, my wife was pointing out. I was talking about your book with my wife, and uh, that you know it can be contagious. And and, and yeah. I was thinking about you know when my uh, parents died and siblings and just you know at at funerals and things when you're mourning, it can it can be kind of contagious like that. And laughter can be contagious. Um, so it's complicated, Ben. I, this is probably not news to you. It's complicated. And, and what I think about those contagious tears is that they actually stimulate a connection between you and the other person that's crying. That oftentimes mm -hmm. if you cry with somebody, you feel closer with them afterwards. I've definitely cried with, you know, total strangers before in my the course of my work. And I feel differently about them than I did uh, you know, before I had that experience crying with them. And I, it's interesting when I was reading Advinger Hood's research on the, because that's what they find is that when people cry, people want, on average, want to provide that person assistance. And that, you know, if they do provide them assistance, that there there is, you know, a, a greater, uh, you know, degree of, uh, you know, personal uh, affection between the people than, you know, before, before that exchange happened. Mm -hmm. And I found myself thinking about your book, The Evolution of God, because I, I think that it, plays a sort of similar function oftentimes in stimulating pro-social relationship outside of our kinship circles. So that certainly, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you're right. You know, when we're all in a hundred person hunter-gatherer tribes, like you're probably related in some way to anybody whose cries you might be hearing. But, you know, sooner or later that changes. And all of a sudden you're living in, you know, a town, a city where you encounter all kinds of people who you don't necessarily know. And it's really, you know, in order for that cultural evol evolution to proceed apace, it's essential that people develop, you know, somewhat close emotional connections with people that they don't have any, you know, mm -hmm. uh, reason to, to want their, you know, evolution, you know, their, their, their genes to survive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that crying plays a really important role in stimulating that kind of pro-social relationship outside the bonds of immediate family. Yeah, it's like whenever, it seems like whenever you see somebody crying and it seems authentic, and sometimes yeah. it doesn't, 
And, yep. and there are some examples in your book we could talk about. Um, but uh, when it seems authentic, it, it just seems like it's always, at least to some extent, moving, right? I mean, yeah. who is not moved by the sight of genuine crime? Um, uh, unless you just completely dislike the person, in which case you're probably suspicious of the sincerity anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was thinking, this is by way of nothing, but but we were talking about the categories of like stray male and stereotype the cowboys don't cry. One of one of the the I mean, who more symbolizes masculine than masculinity than professional athletes, right? And yet one of the most reliable venues for crying is when a professional athlete announces his retirement. Yep. It usually happens. If <laughs> and it's just or uh, when they win, or like when when a team wins the that, the Super Bowl, or whatever. Too. A lot of times people will cry. That too, yeah. Uh, especially, yeah. I, I think of especially, yeah, yeah. Um, and like we and we have a certain cultural permissiveness for those kinds of tears that, like, oftentimes we don't have. You know, like those those are yeah. allowed because you you won the championship, so you get to cry. You get one cry. <laughs> you, yeah. you earned it for, through a championship. But what's really interesting is I think if you look in sort of the periphery, there's a, a fabulous um, uh, photojournalism project called Fourth Place um, that was done at the Sydney Olympic Games where this person took all these pictures of people coming in fourth place in all of these different Olympic categories. So they're you know, just missing the medal stand. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them are crying. And it's like this beautiful testament to sort of resilience and failure and... Uh, you know, grief, but simultaneously, you're you're still the fourth best person in the world at something, you know? And I, right. I think that, like, crying is so often in, in these, we find it in these interesting places that reveal so much of, like, the complicated emotion, like, in that crying moment, that, that snatch second photograph of the person weeping in the pool, we get this whole story of, of you know, the triumph of getting to that point, the failure of falling short, like, and it's just a really beautiful, you know, mm -hmm. tears refract so much of our humanity. You know, I asked my wife if she had any qu questions about crying. So I'm going to hit you with a couple. Love this. Uh, here's one that's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you'll have anything to say about it. Crying is caused by emotion. Does it also cause emotion? I think so. Or at least I don't think so. When I started writing the book, I really thought about crying as like the end point to an emotion. Uh -huh. Like it's the it's the exclamation point, uh, the product of all of the you know the some emotional experiences preceding it, and I don't really think that anymore. The more I talk to people about crying, the more I wrote about it, the more I thought about it. I really see crying as sort of an ellipsis, as a doorway of sorts that it you know ask we we enter with an emotion, and very often crying helps that emotion sort of move through our bodies. So we see that in you know an experience of grieving over a loved one. Oftentimes at the end of it, it's not that, you know, the emotion is gone. You're like, oh, not sad about grandma anymore. You know, you're still you're still in that grieving place, but your grief right. is different. Right. And so I think that, you know, in an, as much as it causes emotion, I would say that, you know, it modulates the emotions that we're experiencing. One of the other really fascinating interviews I did um, for the book was with this psych uh, this psychological researcher who was really fascinated by why art makes people cry um, because he I he actually started off as an artist and then he was at a Rothko exhibit and he saw all of these people weeping in front of Rothko paintings. And he was like, well, that's weird. Um, you know, they're just big voluminous blocks of color. Like clearly if, if you're crying, it, it's not the painting. It's like something's happening in you. Mm -hmm. And he sort of has this whole model of crying as, as a, as a psychological journey that like when people engage with a piece of art, very often they'll enter into this liminal space where they let their guard down in a way that they wouldn't, you know, at the supermarket. And they go in with this expectation that like, oh, yeah, I can engage with this piece of art and it's going to be fine. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just going to be out the same on the other side as I was when I went in. And then oftentimes, because you've let, lowered your guard, you have this transformative experience with this piece of art and now you're crying and now you don't know what's going to happen. And you all of a sudden have dug up this stuff that was already there to begin with, but now you're really experiencing in full. And so I think that that crying experience absolutely oftentimes becomes a doorway, a portal where you know, we start to cry because we feel a little something. And then as we continue crying, we realize that, you know, that little something we were feeling was just the tip of this much deeper art iceberg that we were carrying around. We hadn't really, you know, delved into fully. Mm -hmm. Um, another wife question. I'm, I'm guessing there's more than one answer to this and you, you, you may or may not, uh, be conversant subject, but, uh, how do actors make themselves cry? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that there are, you know, are we talking about good actors or bad actors? No, I've heard that there's some people who, you know, like you, before the camera starts rolling, you, you put some, you know, drops in the eyes. We call those you, bad actors. You squeeze one out. Yeah. So <laughs> if, we, if we put those people aside, what I've heard from, because I did interview some actors about how they cry. Um, and they reported just, you know, that the way you do that is you feel the emotion. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's the good acting is that you actually make yourself feel the kind of emotion that would produce those tears. And so then those tears aren't something that you're consciously trying to produce. They're just, you have so firmly embodied that emotional experience that you are now, you know, genuinely crying. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why I, I think, you know, as you know, we, you alluded earlier to like, oh, when we think tears are, are deceptive or, you know, particularly if we don't like the person, we will, you know, assume that they're deceptive. I think very oftentimes people who I find odious are crying very genuine tears. Mm -hmm. Like I think about like Kyle Rittenhouse on the witness stand and there were all these people being like, oh my God, he was faking crying. I'm actually not sure. I think that he very much believed that this was a very unfair thing that he was having to go through that. Like how dare, you know, people, yeah. uh, you know, fault him for taking care of himself and his his country by you know patrolling this the streets with a rifle uh and i think that those tears that he was was weeping were genuine tears i think you know what we need to stop doing is arguing about whether or not tears are genuine and start talking about you know what what is the thing that is producing the tears and realize that you know a lot of the people we find odious it's not the fact that they're you know faking crying it's that these tears are grounded in you know fundamentally destructive ideologies yeah the that that's interesting um because you know, as we said, uh, crying sometimes presumably serves a kind of signaling function. And and one kind of, this isn't quite what he was doing at the time, probably, but it can signal um, uh, regret, uh, even apology, like, I'm sorry. You know, people can break down crying and, and it can increase the chances that you will be granted forgiveness. And on the one hand, um, I would say you could call that to the extent that it is functioning as this signal and to the extent that you may not have felt nearly so much remorse the day before when you weren't looking for forgiveness in front of this per person. And in that sense, it may be performative. I also think it's, it, that doesn't mean it's a conscious performance. In other words, the, the, the uh, it may serve the function of eliciting forgiveness. And for that reason, uh, you may do it when you're suddenly confronted with a person you want forgiveness from, but that doesn't mean you're consciously faking it, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, I think very often where we have, we feel a real thing, even if the reason that we feel that thing is not particularly noble. Right. Now that said, here's a test case. In I mean, that said, sometimes it is probably consciously performative. And an sure. interesting test case, you brought up Joel Osteen in your book, famous I do. televangelist. First of all, could we pause uh, and just have a moment of admiration for his sheer uh, oratorical technique? And I'm not really, I'm not really kidding here. I mean, yeah, he's no, good. He's yep. good. He he's not now for my money. He's two percent too theatrical. So he doesn't. If you compare him to say Billy Graham, whom I had a lot more respect for, um, I look Joel Osteen. I don't mean to shower disrespect on anybody, but let's face it. Uh, well, yeah, anyway, let's not get off on it. But he is an amazing, whatever you want to call it, performer. I mean, he does these sermons that look as if he'd spent, a, he gives them every week, but they look as if he'd spent a year on each mm -hmm. one. He doesn't seem to refer to any notes. And every every sentence is accompanied by some kind of appropriate gesture. And uh, he's really good. But anyway, in the book, uh, you talk about his crying, and I, I don't think you claim it's performative. On the other hand, you're not no. as sympathetic toward <laughs> his crying as you are toward some people's crying. He's like a prosperity gospel guy for people who don't yeah. know. He's like, you can and become I, rich by uh, accepting my version of what the New Testament is all about. And by giving me money. I mean, like, that, that and is by, like the and by making me a little like, richer. Yes. If, you, if you give me money, your blessings that you have given me yeah. will be, yeah. you know, uh, re rewarded to you tenfold. And if it mm -hmm. doesn't happen, well, you probably weren't praying good. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so to, your, to your point, yeah, he is an incredibly effective orator. I mean, that's why he's been able to, you know, amass this gigantic, you know, empire of uh, prayer, TM. Uh, 
I think the crying for me and what it does and the function it serves in, in that oratory is it makes him appear vulnerable. It connects him to his audience because all of a sudden this person, particularly in a, in a context like that, where, you know, this person has incredible situational power. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are both the head pastor in this church and also just, you know, one of the, you know, uh, leading Christian, you know, voices in the sort of right-wing Christian world, you know, tons of books and appearances on Oprah, you know, yada, yada, yada. It would be very easy for that person to start feeling like they were not a real person, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it would be very easier for people to look at him and be like, oh, there's Joel in his giant mansion with all his cars and his, you know... And that really, uh, you know, doesn't do great things for the <laughs> for the preaching brand. And so I think what that that crying does is it makes him appear, you know, vulnerable, like like anybody else. You know, here's Joel. He's just trying to do his best. He's just living, you know, one day at a time like the rest of us. He puts his shoes on one, you know, one foot after the other. He, you know, like us, experiences, you know, setback and heartbreak. And, and I'm mm -hmm. not saying that he doesn't experience those things, but... <laughs> You know, the the irony of, you know, this this facade of humility coming from somebody who lives in a $20 million mansion is a little thick, mm -hmm. you know. And so when he, you know, talks to Oprah in this interview from his, you know, palace, you know, <laughs> from Avignon and says. Yeah, which, according to your book, is 17,500 square feet. That's. Yes. That's super big. Go ahead. Really big. <laughs> I mean, that's so big. You probably need one of those like mall signs. You're like you're in the East Wing. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. So so he, uh, uh, you know, and in this conversation with her, he's like, yeah, you know, just God has blessed us in the way that like I would say that. But we're like, I have a book. Look at this. I did it. I wrote it. I'm so excited. Like yeah. he's talking about you know a hundred million dollars and this palace in Texas in the same way that I would refer to like, oh, I'm so excited. My kid got an A. You know, like. And it's the same kind of vo vocal tone. It's the same kind of vulnerable, uh, you know, inflection. But it is obscuring the central truth about all of this wealth and power that he has amassed. And I think that for me is like in that chapter on, uh, you know, I, I call it crocodile tears and something. Um, the the difference between manipulative tears is not so much whether or not they are real in in the emotionality of the person who's experienced them. It's do they reveal the truth or do they cover it up? And mm -hmm. I think that for me, that's the defining difference is, you know, there are a lot of kinds of weeping that are covering up a central truth rather than, you know, the kinds of weeping that I, uh, I find really beautiful and powerful and moving. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, we should aspire to, which are the kinds of tears that reveal something that's true about mm -hmm. ourselves and what we believe about the world. And this leads to a pushback question. I, 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 I have to give everyone pushback. Push so uh, it, it was just kind of a little in the, in the chapter in which you mentioned Osteen. I think it's the same chapter. Yeah. At any event, in any event, you, you somewhere in the book, you talk about him. You also talk about uh, someone who it was a, a beggar on the street. And mm -hmm. you kind of, I mean, first there's this anecdote from when you were a kid. Yep. And there was uh, somebody saying to your father, you know, I've I, I, I lost my I need cab fare to get home. Your dad's reluctant. You pushed him into giving him the money. Oh, and the guy said, I swear, I'll pay you back. Just tell me where you live yep. or whatever. And and he never shows up. And your parents had to yep. explain to you, look, it was a con. This, this is these things happen. That's why I was reluctant to give him the money in the first place. And then yep. uh, you you give us an anecdote where more recently um, you gave money to a beggar and yep. you say, look. I didn't, did I really think his story was true? Well, uh, you know, maybe not, but I felt if I don't believe it, uh, well, you fill that out. But, but anyway, sure. I guess, I guess my question is, why don't you say the same thing about Joel Osteen? And there were a few other examples. Well, you mentioned one, uh, Rittenhouse, you, you just, um, there, uh, you seem to have different attitudes to people, all of whose crying seemed susceptible to the same uh, level of skepticism in principle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sense? for me, I think it, it boils in part down to a power analysis that like there there is a 
a power and danger in sort of the sanctifying power of Rittenhouse's tears or in the sort of predatory uh, theology of Joel Osteen that is not present in this guy who is, you know, outside of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital asking me for money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, yeah, he, he told me this whole story about how, oh, his his wife and uh, was in, you know, the hospital and he needed to get back to his kids and, you know, wherever he lived and he didn't have enough money to get the train. You know, there's a whole thing. Um, and like all of the alarm bells were ringing in my head. Like I was like, I don't think this is true. Um, and to decide that and to not give him money, there's like a, there's a cynicism there. Mm-hmm. And it's like one that I don't like to feed. And so I, I didn't give him like, you know, $60. I gave card. him a couple bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I didn't like, you know, uh, but I gave him a couple dollars because, you know, I, I, he's, he's here. He is at the very least. What I think is true is that he needed the money. And so I'm willing to give him the money because he's asking for money on the street. I mean, that's, and again, you know, this is sort of a, a, you know, it's a power analysis place where like, if you are standing on the street asking strangers who are passing by for money, uh, you probably need that $2 more than, than I do than I needed it at that particular moment. And I'm happy to give it to you. And I, I do kind of want to live in that world where I still believe that maybe that's true, that maybe mm-hmm. he really did need the money to go and, you know, get back to his kids after visiting his wife. I don't know. I'm, okay. I, again, I have my suspicions, but I try not to feed those suspicions about other people, particularly when they're coming from a place of vulnerability, feigned or, or otherwise. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I think that for me, the the like the written houses, the, you know, Amy Cooper's the, you know, I mean, we could go through the list of, of people who've sort of wielded tears for reasons that I find, uh, you know, personally odious for me, the, the defining point there is like, are you using your tears to escape accountability for violence to, mm-hmm. you know, continue to amass power, you know, somebody like, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh weeping during the, you know, the Supreme court nomination hearings, like there are, to me, very clear, you know, ways those tears, regardless of what, again, regardless of whether or not they're being genuinely felt, their function is to continue amassing power for somebody who has shown to use that power abusively and who, you know, in the aftermath of that decision has continued to use power abusively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Amy Cooper is a woman who, uh, I guess in Central Park, she had a dog off a leash, right, which was against the rules. And then uh, there was a, a black guy uh, who bird watching? Who's bird watching and kind of reprimanded her, and then she called the police. And uh, I guess the the shady thing that got people's attention was she said, "There's an African American man uh, doing this." When she dialed nine one one, and of course there are cases where where a visual description of a person is appropriate, like if they're at large and the police are looking for him. But but it wasn't kind of obvious why she, that was the first thing she had to tell him. I will say on her behalf that um, he his own account of what he said to her included one thing that could be taken as kind of a threat to her dog in a weird way. I forget what it was. Look, she was obviously kind of unstable and and was reacting. First of all, you shouldn't have your dog off a leash. That kind of thing drives me nuts. But yeah. but um, she was reacting well, and, and in and a it was way like the repetition too. That like then like you know she's clearly you only hear the one side her her side of the conversation. Yeah. But like after she doesn't get the response she wants, she like she emphasizes like African American, and the next time she says it, she's like, "Is that the way it was?" African American man. Yeah. yeah, like it's 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 <laughs> yeah. the gambit is is a little clear. You don't understand. Um, this is no ordinary man. Yeah. <laughs> he has a bike helmet. You know, I mean, it's. I think the part of what makes people so mad about those kinds of experiences, one, obviously, it's like the sordid history of American racism where, you know, all all too often those kinds of tears had lethal con- consequences. But there's also a, par- a part of us that just gets really mad when we see people misusing, like, to our eyes, misusing vulnerability because mm-hmm. it's such a betrayal when we find out we've been scammed, when we, you know, when we find out that somebody you know, cried to us. And then we later find out, oh, that was just, you know, a facade. Like, it feels like a personal betrayal because it is preying upon our own empathy and trust Mm -hmm. that like we really long to, I think most of us long to have, that we long to move through the world, being able to trust that when we come into contact with another human being, particularly if they are expressing vulnerability and a need for assistance, that if we then, you know, meet them there, that that will be, have been grounded in, in the truth. Mm-hmm. And so to, you know, see somebody who is in a manifestly not dangerous situation 
talking in a way that expressed clear and present danger and using tears and vulnerability to do that is, I, I think, something that makes a lot of people really, really angry on top of the whole racism aspect of it. Just that that misuse of vulnerability as a form of sort of aggression, mm-hmm. I think, makes people instinctively really, really upset because it is it's a violation of something really beautiful about ourselves, which is that we want to care for people if they're experiencing duress. Yeah. The uh, So here's another question from my wife. Do we cry more in certain stages of life? And are the triggers that elicit tears different in different stages? And let me let me add to that. Um, I mean, she mentions toddlers as having their own kind of set of crying. Yeah. And, and she also says, do men and women cry more or less than, uh, than each other at different stages and so on? Uh, there's a lot there. I, I would say that one thing that occurred to me when I was reading about what you opened this conversation with, which was that long period where you didn't cry. It's like, yeah. I was kind of thinking, I don't think between the ages of kind of 12 and whatever college, I don't, I don't think I did much crying. It's funny. I remember when I was like about 12, I did something that, uh, it's a long story, but I dropped a pillow from a long, anyway, I broke a lamp. My mother was really mad and I started like crying and she just looked at me like, dude, <laughs> like, and I just thought, you know, on the one hand, it felt kind of, I didn't think I'm acting and pretending to cry. The crying just came. But then when she looked at me like that, I thought, yeah, this is just, this is just tactical crying. I'm too old for this. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I kind of think, I, I don't know that I don't, re- I don't remember crying I don't know when the next time I remember crying is, uh, but, but so I was wondering, is that a common, is the period during which you didn't cry, is that kind of a common period, uh, not to cry or maybe for males in particular. Anyway, with that as a uh, prelude, you can say yeah. whatever you want about my wife's question. Love that. Um, I, I love these, these, uh, these missives from Mrs. Wright though. This is, this is fabulous. It's a good. She's, yeah. <laughs> um, she, I, there are lots of them. I'm just focusing on the ones related to crying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so a few things. Uh, on average, men definitely cry less than women or, you know, gender inventive folks. Uh, a lot to the degree that a lot of crying research actually excludes male participants entirely. Because they're just like, oh, it's so habitually hard to make men cry, particularly in the kind of laboratory settings that crying research happens. But they're like, if we have a 50-50 study, that just means that 50% of the data we're just going to have to exclude from the bat. Um, and so they will only use uh, female participants. Um, I think, you know, that divide, I don't actually believe is a really a physiological one. I think it's a product of socialization. Um, you know, in her book. I might disagree, but go ahead. I mean, I'm sure there is a cultural yeah. component, but it would, yeah. given, I, I don't given think the fact that during all evolution. or nothing. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's okay. all or nothing, but I think that it's a combination of maybe perhaps, you know, a, a somewhat different proclivity to cry that is then like robustly shaped through a, a lots of different, you know, forces mm-hmm. of acculturation. Um, I would say that like in the, the folks who I heard and not just men, but like the folks who I heard who talked about, you know, not crying for a while and then learning how to cry again, that it oftentimes did coincide with the same period that I was talking about hmm. that like hmm. in later childhood, they stopped crying. And then in their 20s um, or 30s, they sort of learned how to cry again. And I think mm-hmm. for me, what that is indicative of is that you have kids who sort of are, you know, we're all born with a natural proclivity to cry, to solicit assistance. And then that persists in most children for, you know, quite some time that like, you know, toddlers and children, you know, are generally pretty open about crying when for a whole <laughs> host of different reasons. And then in various different ways, we all learn that it's not appropriate or that maybe there are situations where it's appropriate and other ones where it's not, you know, uh, where it's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And it, that's the confusing lesson to learn. And so sometimes it's easier to just not cry at all rather than try to, you know, do that work of discerning when it, when or when it's not appropriate. And then lots of other kids are just, you know, flat out told don't cry in, you know, lots of explicit ways or implicit ways. You know, mm-hmm. I include some examples in my book of like, you know, memories I have of watching other adults, you know, tell their kids explicitly, don't cry. Uh, there are lots of the folks who I, you know, interviewed who report, you know, having their parents be like, no, that's not acceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think a lot of times, you know, no, rarely, you know, do people say that to their three-year-old like this, you know, <laughs> most, most parents have at least a, a little bit more 
uh, compassion than that. But there comes a time where like a lot of parents are like, oh, well, you're you're more grown now. And that means that you don't cry. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, there then becomes this period where, you know, from sort of early adolescence to uh, early adulthood, that crying becomes extinguished in a lot of people, certainly not everybody. Um, and I think the that is a, is a real harm that we do to a whole host of people. And then those people end up having to sort of relearn. A lot of them start to cry again in their 20s and 30s because they recognize, like I did, that like, oh, there's something there's something missing in my emotionality. Like, I, I'm not a, a full person in the way that I used to be at some point in time. Um, and so then they have to do that work of sort of regaining and relearning how to feel. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of folks who I you know spoke with then are feeling this sort of second shame, that they had this shame that was, that they felt about crying you know, that they learned for whatever reasons that they learned to be shamed about crying as a kid. And now they have all this shame because they don't feel like they're emotionally available to the people in their lives. Or they feel like they're, you know, that they have all this, you know, pent up feeling inside of them that they can't let out. All these different reasons that they now feel this shame that they're not able to cry. And it's just this real, you know, really sad mm. stage of affairs that we, we inculcate in so many children. Do you get a sense that older people in the sense of like, 60s 70s um report uh crying well i'm kind of wondering it could work both ways on the one hand i mean speaking uh as someone who's closer to the end of my life than the beginning um on the one hand it seems like you're better at absorbing ups and downs and rolling you know with the the, the punches on the other hand there's a sense in which you are uh more sensitive to certain aspects of the the uh, poignance and tragedy of life i don't know i'm trying i i i don't know is there is there any conventional wisdom on like whether uh what the deal is with uh old people and crying well and i think it's complicated too because you're also you know then factoring in generational differences in the ways that like right, different generations true. were raised that's true um and so i definitely heard you know from some older folks who I interviewed who were just talking about how crying was really not appropriate when they were growing up in a way that like now that they're older, they feel like the culture has also shifted. And so not only are they more likely to cry, they also just recognize that, you know, that that it, it's a different, it, it feels different crying now for them than it did when they were, you know, a younger mm -hmm. person. Um, and so, but I, I, I do think that there's a sort of reflectiveness that, you know, oftentimes accompanies the weeping accompanies that is true for a lot of older people. I see that even just in like my own grandfather, um, you know, hearing the stories about him that like my uh, uncles and my dad would tell about him just being a much more sort of stoic and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, brusque person at times. Then now, I, like he's a, a much more emotional person than, than mm -hmm. the sort of stories I would hear about when, he, you know, my parent was, uh, my parents were growing up. Um, and so I think that there are, is some transformation that happens through people's lives. Uh, but I also think it's, it's interesting, you know, the kinds of generational divides. When I talk about uh, my book with the, with the Gen Z crowd, they like, they love it. A lot of them like never really, never had the, like they, they were really raised to like embrace their crying. And they're like, yeah, this is, this is great. I love that you're writing about, about crying. I cry all the time. Uh, in a way that I, I didn't find as much with sort of even like members of my millennial cohort, which are only, you know, uh, 10 years older mm -hmm. but i think the you know the cultural differences that happened over the course of uh you know even that short 10-year gap have really changed the way that you know kids are growing up um yeah. and so I, I think that those are you know reflected even more broadly when we're thinking about you know people in their 70s and people in their 20s yeah i don't think i ever saw my father cry and i and for that matter my daughters have i think only seen me cry once so it's uh not getting uh, in my lineage. It's not improving at a very rapid rate. Um, so, um, so listen, we've been, uh, we've been talking about an hour. Uh, I've been, one thing I've been doing with this podcast lately is going ahead and, uh, after an hour, which has always been kind of roughly the, the length of these conversations, um, spending some time in kind of overtime. This part is available only to, uh, uh, members uh, of the non-zero newsletter, paid subscribers, non-zero newsletter. Um, I should add that anybody can become one. If uh, in the in the show notes in the podcast app, there's a, a link you can click, uh, or you can just kind of Google non-zero Substack and go there. And then once you're a paid subscriber, 
Um, you can you can uh, set up your own podcast feed that will always have the longer versions of these things. Uh, and um, you have been kind enough to agree to stick around a little while, Ben, while we talk more. Uh, I want to. The I wanna, zone. What's that? I said, let's take it to the money zone. To the money zone. <laughs> uh, come on, we use euphemisms. <laughs> Well, you saw I was kind of vacillating between members, paid subscribers. You know, we we look, we try to avoid explicit references to commerce. That's what that was, that's what works for Joel for Joel Osteen. <laughs> um, the uh, I, I want to uh, in overtime. I do want to talk a little about um, first of all my most embarrassing adult crying experience. I also want to talk a little about uh, psychedelics and crying. You may not have realized we were going to talk about that. We are. Love that. Uh, and then whatever you want to talk about and various other things. Um, but first, before we go into overtime, I want to give you a chance to say anything else you would like to say about the book that you think we haven't covered adequately. Again, it's called Cry Baby with a comma after cry. Why Our Tears Matter. It's just out. Brand new. And what do you, what would you like to say in closing? Uh, if I could, I'll, I'll read the, the blessing for crying that I end the book with. Um, that sounds good. So that, a nice little way that I, I like to that I, I closed the book and it's a nice way to close this little podcast. Although you really should uh subscribe and and join the absolutely however the moving zone. however moving what you're about to read is it pales it's in gonna comparison be so much what better afterwards behind the paywall. Yeah you want to hear the psych the pastor talk about the psychedelic effects of crying. Yeah I guarantee it. Uh but because I'm a pastor I'll leave you with a benediction. If you've lost your tears May you find them again. Know that you are never beyond redemption and worthy of full emotional life. May crying nourish you, a balm for the wounds you still carry, and a salve on fresh hurt. As droplets fall, may they water new growth, and may our collective weeping shape a world better than the one we inherited. May we attune ourselves to grief, and hold the places we are broken, repairers of the breach. May cries long silenced be heard in full, yeast for our communal rising. Hold each other fiercely, not to build a future where every eye is dry, but one where we weep copiously from the joy and tenderness of living. That's very good. And you mentioned you mentioned joy. We didn't even get into very much into tears of joy. We, we mentioned athletes sometimes crying after triumph, but uh, that's also a big, uh, big part of it. Anyway, we can talk about some of this in overtime, which we're headed into now. Meanwhile, thank you for this. I encourage everybody to get the book uh, and read it. And that was a, a lovely uh, kind of benediction.